Welcome to our latest webinar brought to you by the University of Otago Rural Postgraduate Program and the Division of Rural Hospital Medicine. Um, tonight, I'm privileged to be joined by Associate Professor Gary Nixon of Dunstan Hospital and Dr. Rory Miller, who is based at Thames Hospital. Gary is the Director of the Rural Postgraduate Program at the University of Otago, and Rory is his um, deputy. Both Rory and Gary take a keen interest in all things cardiac and are involved in the management of many cardiac patients in the inpatient and outpatient setting. Rory is currently undertaking his PhD in the area of chest pain and the use of point of care troponin in the rural setting and, and some of you may have um, contributed to his data set. Gary and Rory have joined me um, this evening to discuss a topic that, that is dear to me and an issue that we as rural doctors deal with almost on a daily basis, and that is heart failure. So heart failure is a rather huge topic, and we want to recognise that we're not going to cover it in all its depth and breadth tonight. We also want to recognise that it's not a, um, like so many areas of medicine, it's not a, an area that always has a clean cut single answer. And Gary and, and Rory may slightly differ in the way that they um, manage things and approach the nuances of heart failure. This evening, we're going to take a case-based approach, um, focusing on two real life cases and applying management principles to them. Please feel free to add any comments and questions via the chat box and I'll keep an eye on that. Um, and just a reminder to keep your, your mics off and also to please complete the survey um, at the end and the link to that is in the chat box and that gives you the opportunity to give your medical council number so that I can enter your CME points with the um, college. And I think Rory has put that link into the chat box. Um, all things going well, we will have an intermission this evening between our two cases and be joined by Jennifer Keyes, um, Chair of the um, uh, Division of Rural Hospital Medicine. Um, she's currently at work, but hopefully she'll be able to join us during the evening just to chat about a couple of things. So without further ado, um, we will plunge into things. So we're going to start by, Gary's just going to give us a brief overview of a few concepts, and then we'll move on to the first case that Rory will present. So I know, Gary, from, from personal experience and having worked with you, um, that you're not very fond of the words heart failure um, being written in isolation as part of someone's past medical history. And I was just wondering if you could um, elaborate on why simply writing heart failure is not really adequate enough um, in, that, in that problem list or that, uh, is that impression? Yeah, that, oh, that's right, Matilda, as uh, any registrar that's worked with me will, will probably know. Um, and I'm particularly not keen on seeing heart failure written by itself in the past medical history or the problem list. Uh, heart, heart failure is a clinical syndrome and it's not a diagnosis. And there's lots of, lots of potential causes for it unless you sort of actually state the underlying um, cardiac problem that's leading to the heart failure, then you're really not giving uh, anybody any clues about how to best to best to manage it. The hassle is, though, that most of that additional information you can only get from an echo. Uh, and, and critically, it's the ejection fraction and knowing whether or not that's normal or whether or not or it's reduced. And I mean, that's all very well to say, but I know that in a lot of rural areas in particular, getting an echo can actually be pretty tricky. But having said that, most of us do have some bedside ultrasound skills nowadays and even having a quick look with point of care ultrasound is is way better than uh, than nothing 
Um, it's possible Roy might come back a little bit later on to talk about access to Echo because I know he's um, been doing around, some work around the, the figures for that. Thanks, Gary. And we're not we're not going to spend ages delving into pathophysiology, and we may cover this a wee bit later. But just could you just tell us maybe the the top kind of three causes that we'd see of heart failure in, in New Zealand? You know, sort of the the real um, really co- more common causes. We'll probably come to it a little bit later. So that even more so is even more important is is that donate ejection fraction and, and and dividing your type of heart failure based around the state of the left ventricle. Um, but the most common causes of, that we would see, I mean, the real standouts obviously are uh, hypertension and ischemic heart disease. Although having said that, uh, dilated cardiomyopathies either due to rate-related cardiomyopathies from poorly controlled atrial fibrillation or idiopathic cardiomyopathies are pretty common as well. I think our cases tonight are really going to strive to demonstrate that importance of differentiating between the the reduced ejection fraction and the preserved ejection fraction. So without um, further ado, Rory, we'll we'll move on to our first case. So I think Rory's going to present a case that he encountered um, in Thames and then... Uh, he might throw it to, to Gary to um, offer some thoughts on how uh, he might have managed that case. Thanks, Matilda. Thanks, Gary. Cool. So uh, this is a chap who presented uh, to Thames Hospital. He was 64. He had no past medical history or no recorded past medical history. He wasn't on any medications, uh, but he was a smoker. Um, and he presented with sort of a marked increase of shortness of breath over the last few days, went from kind of being able to mow the lawns and to not being able to make it to the to the front door uh, in one go. Um, and plugging a bit deeper, he had uh, some, he wasn't able to lay flat and had about four or five pillow orthopnea and he was waking up breathless uh, overnight, was taken to sleeping in a chair. Um, he'd noticed that his ankles were swollen. He probably drank a box of beer a week, um, but denied more than that, denied recreational drugs and didn't know of any um, family history um, of uh, cardiac or otherwise conditions. Um, we got an x-ray for him, which is hopefully you'll be able to see on the screen. Um, and his blood pressure was a little low, 110 over 60. Uh, respiratory rate is certainly taken neck with a respiratory rate of 30 and uh, slightly hypoxic on room air. And he was definitely unable to lie flat with a JVP of five centimetres above the sternal notch. Uh, listening to the chest, because occasionally still do that uh, these days. He had um, crackles right up to his bilateral mid-zones um, with marked sacral and, and edema probably up to his knees um, or even above. Um, and some investigations, we sent some sound at him and Matt, I think you're online, but you can keep your emails to yourself about the quality of that echo. Um, but that, hopefully that's that little clip's playing there on the um, uh, on the screen. And he had a raised BMP, uh, a raised uh, troponin. His, his kidneys were doing all right. And a um, ECG showed that he was in sinus rhythm with a, a broad complex uh, QRS that um, resembled left bundle branch block. Uh, Professor Nixon, what do you think? <laughs> I agree with the majority, I reckon, Rory. Yeah. So heart, heart failure with re- reduced ejection fraction. I mean, that was a that was a pretty um, poor 
uh, LV function on that echo that you showed us. I mean, you, you, you guess, and it's just guessing, having eyeballed it, that's probably around the sort of 15% or so. Um, if so, the important cutoffs are just to remind everybody if the ejection fraction is 50 is more than 50%, that's heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. If it's less than 40%, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And then you've got this sort of new term which describes those with an ejection fraction between 40 and 50%, this heart failure with mid range ejection fraction, which nobody really entirely knows what to do with. Um, these, definitely the, these are the best terms. I know in the past we've used the terms diastolic and systolic um, heart failure, but the reality is that many patients have a, have a combination of diastolic and systolic dysfunction. And it's actually those ejection fraction cutoffs that the big trials have been based on and, and, and that's what evidence-based therapy is, is based on. So they're the best words to use. So shall I just summarize the important points as I see them from this guy. So he, as you can see, he's just a, a, quite a young man. He's only in his early 60s. Um, he's got pretty obvious biventricular failure from that history in that uh, chest X-ray. You'd be suspicious that this is on the basis of unrecognized coronary artery disease um, from um, what Rory's told us about the, about the point of care ultrasound. Um, but, but having said that, there's generalists, we're pretty good at eyeballing and making an assessment of LV function when we look at point of care ultrasound, but we're pretty poor when it comes to our accuracy in deciding whether or not someone's got a regional wall abnormality, and like really especially in the sort of patient who's got a good going bundle branch block, so I probably wouldn't read that too much into that, which means then you've got all those other potential causes of a dilated cardiomyopathy like alcohol, rate control, infiltrative causes, post-viral, those sorts of things. Um, the other bits of information that have been given, I wouldn't take any notice at all of the troponin. This degree of heart failure invariably results in a bit of troponin release. Uh, and, and this is not due to ischemia. This is due to chronic changes that occur in the myocytes due to, to strain. So this will be classified as non-ischemic myocardial injury and, and gives you no useful information about whether or not this patient's um, uh, got an ischemic cause for their, uh, their um, cardiomyopathy. Um, the blood pressure is not fantastic, but it's reasonable. Uh, and he's got a good creatinine. So I would describe him as wet and, and wet and warm. Now, I, I won't go into it at the moment, but uh, we can come back to it later if you want, Matilda. But this idea of dividing your patients up into one of those four quadrants um, based on their um, perfusion and their uh, volume status is, is a really good way about thinking about all your heart failure patients. Um, some point, he's going to need a formal echo, but we can wait for that. We've got then the information we need at the moment to get on and start that that initial treatment. And probably at some point down this track, he also needs an angiogram if we're thinking about the, a, a potential uh, coronary artery disease cause for his um, his his cardiomyopathy. But that's that's definitely not urgent. That that can get you know done as an outpatient uh, in, in weeks or a month or two down the track. Yeah, I agree with uh, with all that. Um... 
Gary and it's certainly what, what I was or what we were kind of thinking. So where, where are you going to start uh, treating this guy? Okay. Oh, I mean, the first job is your obvious one. It's around offloading some volume. He's he's got good creatinine and he's um, through his mind naive. Um, so I, I don't think you need to sort of be too radical with that at the start. Um, but he's he is really a demitus, and it's pretty unlikely he's going to absorb anything orally. Um, so I, I'd go for for IV for his mind. But I would just start pretty gentle, just 40 milligrams and, and see what sort of response you get. Um, and then you're going to continue that over the next few days. You could have a lot of weight to lose. And my mm. rule of thumb is aiming for one to two kilograms a day. Mm. Mm. And apart from weight, how are you monitoring uh, your diuresis? Oh, again, probably anyone that's worked with me knows what I'm going to say here. The, and the JVP is by far the most important examination probably in, in all of medicine um and, and, and so that's that's going to be your absolute absolute critical thing and you're going to have to have a good look at that every day and, and i mean I, I know that it's a uh bit of a fag and sometimes can be can be difficult to do but it is absolutely essential although once again if if you're having trouble doing it then you've always got that fallback nowadays if you've got ultrasound machine around of having a look at the jvp with ultrasound or, or looking at the at the ivc um, you mentioned weight, and that's that's absolutely critical on a daily basis. My experience, fluid balances are pretty hopeless. They might be useful on the first day or so on the output side, just to make sure they're PUing, but overall they're they're very poorly done and hard to read much into. Um, there's a bit of a vogue for repeated BNPs to monitor the severity of the heart failure and your uh, ongoing treatment, um, but uh, there's not a lot of evidence for this, and it's a rather expensive test. I think at the moment, we, in our setting anyway, we should continue to look at BNP as a diagnostic tool, not a, not as a monitoring tool. Um, I got one question for you to throw back at you, Rory, uh, just because it's done uh, variably in our workplace, and that's that's whether or not you would would fluid restrict this patient as well as uh, use diuretics. Um, I I don't as a general rule. Uh, I I there's little evidence uh, uh, for fluid restriction, although that's comparing 800 milliliters to uh, one and a half liters. Um, I kind of just take a history on how much they're drinking and very few people drink uh, lots. I tell people to drink when they're thirsty, don't push fluids. But otherwise, I don't uh, make um, strict recommendations. Is that what you do, Gary, or do you make, yeah. people, thir make people thirsty? No, I, I think I think you're exactly right. I think it just makes people feel miserable. And there's, there's actually a little bit of evidence that we might be doing a bit of harm by... Uh, applying strict fluid restrictions yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so i mean i, I think uh, in this case i was a bit more aggressive with my diuresis i think we gave him uh, uh maybe 120 milligrams of uh, furosemide in the first 36 hours of or also of his admission and he lost nearly six six kgs uh, of fluid but yeah so um i mean we've we've got him to lose some weight he's ready to go home right that's all we need to do um, no, even even before you've lost all your weight, then then that's the really important stuff nowadays, and the really interesting stuff as well. So, 
uh, I mean, there were probably a few others out there, but who can remember that the days you know, we, in which we tended to think of heart failure as, as being diagnosis of heart failure being sort of inevitable decline and that any patient given that diagnosis was almost invariably going to die within the next five years. But that, that's, that's radically changed. It's probably one of the biggest therapeutic changes that I've seen in, in my career. Um, and now we have this, this magic cocktail of drugs that if it's done properly, and, and it's not easy to do properly, um, can decrease mortality over the, the next one to three years by as much as 50 to 60%. And that, that cocktail is that combination of um, ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, and, um, and spironolactone. Well, thanks very much, Gary. So I think we'll work through those uh, those groups of drugs each individually um, with regard to some of the kind of uh, particular features of each of them. Um, but just to recap, so this is this is a chap who falls into that category of a reduced ejection fraction, and that's who these drugs apply to. The the mortality benefit is for those with reduced ejection fraction. Um, this guy, we need to look for a cause of his reduce, reduced ejection fraction, and we we're talking about things like ischemic heart disease, that it may be post-viral. Um, for those of us who are, um, see um, large amounts of methamphetamine in the community, these are the kind of patients who fall into that category as well. And then you and Rory have discussed the importance of offloading that extra fluid he's carrying and the need to use intravenous furosemide in those early days because the absorption absorption's so um, so poor and that there's um, no sort of one fixed dose. It's it's You've kind of got to uh, tailor it to the patient and really looking at the clinical signs and the weight of the, the key things and probably not fluid restricting them. So Gary, if we um, first of all just start with the with the beta blockers, and so I, mean, I think beta blockers are a good one to start with, um, probably because they're the ones that have actually they're the agents that actually probably have the greatest mortality benefit, and are probably the mo the most important, which again is really different to you know the, what we were told when I was uh, I was a house surgeon. Um, I agree with everybody else that. Bisoprolol, Carvedilol, or Metoprolol are all reasonable choices. Um, it's not a class effect, but those three drugs have got a proven role in um, in heart failure, whereas the other two um, beta blockers on Matilda's list don't. Um, but probably I would just um, differ with the majority in terms of the one that I would reach for first. Although, like I say, any one of them would be fine. I mean, my first preference would probably be Carvedilol. Um, it's got some theoretical advantages in heart failure, mainly because it's got a better, better alpha blockade and, and is a, a vasodilator in a way that metoprolol and bisoprolol aren't. Um, and there has been one head-to-head -head trial comparing metoprolol and Carvedilol and although some people criticise the trial, um, Carvedilol did come out a bit, a bit, a bit better. Um, the favourite was Bisoprolol, and it is the most cardioselective and probably has the fewest side effects. You know, especially if we're thinking about asthmatics and senior side effects and that sort of thing. Um, but the the real advantage in Bisoprolol may actually be the numbers. Um, well, you know, it's, it's way easier psychologically for both the patient and ourselves to get somebody up onto 10 milligrams of bisoprolol as their target um, than 190 milligrams of metoprolol, which is 
which the which is the target uh, which is the target for for metoprolol. Um, so for that reason alone, it it, it may may be uh, advantageous. Uh, I mean, we've got to be careful about metoprolol. You know, the 23.75 milligram dose of metoprolol is barely much more than placebo, in all honesty, and and it should only ever be used as a very small sort of starting dose or stepping stone for for the very fragile elderly. Um, the next question was about when to start it, wasn't it? And again, I think this is changing. Initially, there was this real nervousness about beta blockers, um, and we really wanted to get patients pretty much euvolemic and pretty stable before we considered um, starting it. And then there was this evidence come along that said, well, if you don't get in there and don't get the beta blocker started while they're still in hospital, then um, they're not actually going to do as well down the track. So I think we're much more confident about um, getting it started than we used to be. And if the, this patient was doing well and they were diuresing nicely, then I'd, I'd get them started on it pretty soon and well before I, they had lost their entire, you know, 10 kilograms or whatever that they needed to lose before they got uvolemic. You could start, you could quite rationally start the beta blocker before you started the ACE inhibitor. I think most of us would still do it the other way. Um, but as soon as I had them on, you know, a milligram or so of salazapril and we were day sort of three and they had lost sort of four kilograms or so and had a reasonable blood pressure and were looking pretty good, then I'd probably jump in there with, um, with my carvedilol at that stage. Cool. Thanks, Gary. And as far as you, you said that metoprolol, you know, that 23.75 is a really low dose and you are heading towards the target. What kind of, of target are you aiming for? When do you, how do you know when to, to when enough's enough? When you've got to your target. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, I guess. But, but you know, you've got to, you really got to be aiming for target. You're not treating symptoms. You're um, seeking a mortality advantage. And your target needs to be metoprolol 190 um, or bisoprolol 10 or carvedilol 25 BD. Well, thanks. And, we're, and we'll talk a bit more about the uptide trading as we go on. So, um, Rory, do you want to comment a bit about ACE inhibitors and, and ARBs? Yeah, so, um, I mean, the majority of the benefit uh, from evidence-based therapies is in beta blockers and ACE inhibitors. And by themselves, they ACE inhibitors or um, angiotensin receptor blockers contribute about an 8% absolute decrease in, in mortality, which is similar to, to beta blockers. And practically are started just before or about the same time as starting the beta blocker. Um, as opposed to beta blockers, it's a, a class effect. Uh, and most guidelines will recommend uh, start trying an ACE inhibitor. And if they're not um, tolerating that, then uh, move on to uh, an ARB. And generally, just start at low doses and... Um, so salazapril 0.5, quinapril uh, 2.5 perhaps. Um, and I like to try and get one or two dose increases in while they're in, uh, an inpatient, um, depending on what their blood pressure is up to. And, and of course, their renal function, watching out for that you know, symptomatic hypotension and a greater than 30% change in their GFR and hyperkalemia over 5.5. 5. 
And how long do you think you need to like keep monitoring that um, potassium? Is that just while they're in hospital? Or do you think that you need to continue that post discharge? Uh, post discharge, I, I think it's it's like treating anyone with a with a nice inhibitor really i mean we should check should be checking a couple of weeks after every dose increase yep um, and and i think that's really important just reminding ourselves that it's to tolerate that slight worsening apparent worsening of the of the renal fu fu function and in fact that's the asic doing its job so so back to you gary um moving back to the, uh to the spironolactone yeah, thanks, Matilda. And yet your aldosterone block is there, sort of like your, your third pillar of this neurohormonal blockade that we're aiming for. So I, know, I tend to think of it as really essentially just protecting the, the heart from messages coming from these nasty kidneys, which are essentially just flogging it to death, really. Uh, and just protecting it from those messages and, and giving it an opportunity to heal. Um, so th that's why we're using the spironolactone as an aldosterone blocker for cardiac remodeling. Uh, we, we're not using it as a diuretic. So it's important to remember that. In fact, the doses that we're using, sort of, you know, 12 and a half, 25, maybe up to 50 milligrams a day, they really have a, a pretty small um, diuretic, uh, diuretic effect. Uh, again, there's, there's a bit of variability about when to start it, uh, and I'm probably a bit more aggressive than what the guidelines strictly say. Uh, if, you, if you just stuck to the guidelines, then you would wait till they're well established on your ACE inhibitor and your beta blocker, and if they're still symptomatic with a GFR of less than 40, then, sorry, uh, with a um, ejection fraction less than 40, then you'd be jumping in at that stage. Um, but you know, like I, I really make a bit of an effort to try and get this patient started on a little bit of spironolactone before they leave uh, leave hospital. And certainly this patient of Rory's, I'd be aiming to do that. Um, I, I am probably pretty cautious about the dose that I'd use, particularly if they've got a degree of renal impairment. And if sort of their um, GFRs, you know, between 30 and 50, then I'd only be starting them perhaps on 12 and a half milligrams every second day and then increasing it after a week or so. If their GFR is less, less than 30, then I, I probably wouldn't use it at, at, at all. And this, this Matilda, is when it, it does become really, really important to keep a very close eye on your, um, on your potassium because it's, it's when you're combining your ACE inhibitor and your spironolactone that you're going to get into, uh, into problems that way. And I've got probably a pretty strict regime of measuring at least um, twice a week uh, for the first couple of weeks and then probably um, weekly for a month and then monthly for three months and then, then three months, every three months after that. But this, I think it's a couple of really important things to make sure you tell your patient when you start them on spironolactone. The first thing is they need to know is that if they become unwell, particularly if they've got a volume depleting illness, for example, with diarrhea or vomiting, then they need to stop it. So if they, if they go home with blister packs, then somehow they've, someone's got to be able to teach them to be able to identify the spironolactone and, and take take it out when they become unwell. You know, the ones the patients we get readmitted are very, invariably the ones who just push on with it when they start to feel crook because they think they still need to carry on with all their tablets. And then the other important thing to, to warn guys for, because they, they may not raise it, otherwise if it happens, is around the potential side effect of gynecomastia. And especially nowadays, I guess, since we've got that other option of changing them to a pleronone if, if, uh, if they get that. Gary, is that on special authority? 
still. Uh, my understanding it is, I think, on, yeah. on special authority, but I think any of us can apply for it. Good. Um, there's a few questions from down south. Um, so first being, if you don't have heaps of blood pressure to play with, are you better to go with bisoprolol over carvedilol to avoid that alpha blockade? Yeah, I, I can see the logic of that. Yeah. Um, that that's that makes sense. Um, but probably in reality, that's not what I would do. I would just tend to be a bit more gentle with the carvedilol uh, and, and just you know, hold things for a while, even back off very slightly and then, then yep. push on a bit further into, into the future. Yep. Um, but theoretically, that's correct. I think the next question is alluding perhaps to um, the, the, maybe the patient with atrial fibrillation, the tachycardic patient. Tachycardic patient, Should you be pushing the um, beta blocker even earlier in, in their management? Uh, yeah, because... That may be the cause of the actual of the um, of the cardiomyopathy mm. in the first place. Yeah, I mean, because you get that classic chicken and egg thing, don't you? You don't know whether or not this patient has gone into atrial fibrillation because they've got a poor left ventricle, or you don't know whether or not they've got a poor left ventricle because they've got poorly controlled atrial fibrillation, and and only time will tell. Um, but if you if it is uh, the latter then and you provide really good rate control then you'll get a dramatic improvement in their LV function so no exactly right in that situation really good rate control and jumping in straight away with your with your beta blocker yep. and I must say in that situation I would use bisoprolol because it's probably more cardioselective and it's a probably a better rate control than carvedilol yep and then, and Matt's made the point that, you know, in using spironolactone, which is potassium sparing, that might um, counteract some of the effects of your high-dose furosemide while they're in hospital. Yeah, that's that's right. Yep, and I know yep. Matt, Matt's a proponent of that. But it's, 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 it's exactly right. It might make that, that a bit easier, and you may not spend, you know, every afternoon charting large doses or pluvescent yep. if you do that. So those are our really our key three things, um, our beta blocker, our ACE inhibitor, and our uh, aldosterone blockers. But there's certainly some new therapies on the horizon um, and, and not just medical therapies. So I'm just wondering if you want to comment a bit to that, Rory. Yeah, sure. Um, I think I'll just reiterate again that, that the, the three drugs we've, or three classes of medications that we've talked about is uh, are the, the three pillars of long-term, short, medium and long-term heart failure treatment and with reduced ejection fraction and uh, audit and registry data shows that, that the reality is that that's not, people are discharged from hospital with uh, following an admission with heart failure after just having some furosemide and not, not being commenced or have those doses increased if they're already on them. So it's, I, I think that's just the the key backbone for, for treating um, heart failure. Um, but we've got um, uh, a sexy new drug called Entresto, which is a angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitor that's still on special authority. And that's an, a replacement for, uh, for your ACE inhibitor or ARB. Um, it's commenced after a, a 36 hour stand down, it's a twice a day medication. And again, you tend to, to start it at the, the low dose and, and move up every um, two weeks or so. Um, 
the special authority uh, for New Zealand is that you need um, to have a diagnosis of heart failure. You need to have class two to four symptoms. So at worst or at best being short of breath doing um, sort of activities of daily living and class four being short of breath all the time, including at rest. Um, despite the studies showing that it's beneficial for those um, less than, with ejection fractions less than 40% in New Zealand, you need to have um, equal to or less than 35% as your ejection fraction. Um, however, there is a clause now on the special authority that if an echo is not reasonably practical um, and in the opinion of the treating practitioner, the patient would benefit from that treatment, uh, you can still hand on heart fill out that um, that special authority and, and the pharmac has sort of said that, you know, COVID's the only reason why you can't get an echo. So uh, that's uh, why that um, clause is in there. Um, you're right. Uh, and uh, so we, in, in Waikato, we would start this medication um, uh, once people are on pretty good doses of ACE inhibitors and beta blockers. Uh, and, and we're not so concerned about their... Um, spironolactone dose uh, before starting um, and I um, mean anecdotally I've seen some really really good uh, response to people who have been struggling with their heart failure uh, started in Chesto and had uh, some pretty big turnaround in terms of their symptoms I'm not sure what your experience is Gary I think the reason we got you to talk about that one Rory is because your experience with it is good and mine's not quite so good <laughs> but but I, I think the problem, my experience with it, is that we've come to it pretty late and we've tended to give it to um, people when we're running out of um, other options a bit and they've got pretty sluggish blood pressure and stuff and uh, and we've ended up really dropping their blood pressure through their brutes mm. when, when we've tried it. Um, but I, I can I can imagine that more and more we'll be doing um, what you guys are doing up in the Waikato and jumping it in with it quite a lot, uh, a lot earlier because there is great evidence for it. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Roy. And I, I noted when you were presenting that case, so that chap has a left bundle branch block. So mm. would he be a candidate for, for resynchronisation um, pacemaker? And maybe just giving a little bit of background to that therapy. Uh, so I think that was one too. So, yeah, I, I think this is a good one just to keep in the back of your mind. Uh, it's not going to happen all that often, but it's one of the few few situations when there's real value in the patient going back to see the cardiologist. They can um, offer something which is genuinely going to make a difference over and above what uh, you can do. Um, so if this guy comes back after three months, over that time you manage to get him on to reasonably good evidence-based therapy, um, but despite your best efforts, he's still pretty symptomatic um, and he's still got an ejection fraction less than 35% with this really quite broad left bundle branch block, then it is worth asking the cardiologists if they would consider him for a resynchronization pacemaker. Uh, and my experience of seeing patients with those is that they do make a big, big difference and, and patients have done very well. Is that yours, Rory? Yep, absolutely. As long as you, you get their their native heart rate heart rate low enough that the the pacemaker is doing doing the job, um, and they're in sinus rhythm, I think uh, atrial fibrillation is a little more controversial about mm. whether it um, is effective or not. But um, definitely for those in sinus rhythm with with um, 
broad complex um, QRS, uh, so greater than 150 for um, non-leaf bundle branch block and greater than 130 if they do have leaf bundle branch block. Yeah, absolutely. So there's some other aspects of long-term management that we might just skip over in the interest of time, but I'll include in the in the show notes, and we could always come back to if we if things are going well. So, kind of thinking more towards the the point at which you've reached um, your euvolemia, and they're feeling amazing, um, really keen to get home, and. Um, heading home with a bit of furosemide and small doses of, of ACE inhibitor um, and their ARB and their Spiro. And they think that they're, they're cured and the job is done. But is it? Um, where to from here at that, that point of, of discharge? And I'll just give you a little bit, Gary, there's a, there's a question in the chat box, which I'm sure you'll cover here. And that's around if you are sending them home on, on furosemide, you know, how, how do we reduce that dose? Um, what's the what's the long term approach to the uh, prescri- prescribing of furosemide in this case? Yeah, thanks, Matilda. That's that's a really good point about the furosemide, and that's definitely um, something that we need to cover. I'm probably going to get Rory to cover that one, but but this is a really critical time, um, and it's really important that you know both the person that you're handing their care over to, if it's not yourself at the point of discharge, and the patient uh, understand what's got to happen over the next next three months. Uh, and it's really important that the patient's on board about what you're trying to achieve. Um, they, need, they need to understand that this next three months or so is not about symptom control. It's about the healing of the heart. Um, and we're aiming now through this next period to get them on to a drug regime, which is going to really increase your chances of being alive in the in the current years, and and it's not going to be painless. It's probably going to probably going to hurt. So I mean, I, I liken it to sort of like you know the chemotherapy of cardiology. So what what you're going to do with them as an outpatient over the next three months is they're going to come along. They're going to be feeling pretty good, and then you're going to increase the doses of one or both of your evidence-based therapies. And as a consequence of that, they're going to be fatigued. They're probably going to have some postural symptoms with their blood pressure um, and, and, and not particularly enjoy it. And But slowly over the next couple of weeks, th- those symptoms will ease off and they'll come right and they'll come back and see you. And when they do, you're going to hit them again with another dose increase, and they're going to they're going to feel pretty lousy again for probably a week or so. Um, but if they don't understand this and why you're doing it and the importance of it, then um, then it, then it won't happen. And we know we know from studies that have been done that actually we do a really poor job of this titration titration period. Um, and 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 heart failure nurses do a much better job of it, uh, in, in all honesty. And that, I guess the other analogy I use is sort of, which a lot of my patients understand, is around sort of like a two-stroke engine. You know, we can send them away on a pretty rich mixture and a nice high blood pressure and they'll feel pretty good, but they're going to burn it out pretty damn quick. Um, and we've got to send them away on a, on a pretty lean mixture if we want it to, to last into the long term. That. What sort of blood pressure do you put up with with these patients? Well, I mean, if they can get up and walk into the consulting room, um, then probably the blood pressure is good enough. 
and, and, and the worst thing we should be doing, unless they're very symptomatic, is, is easing back on that, um, on the dosage of those medications because we measure a lowish blood pressure. And the same goes to accepting, uh, you know, moderate rises in creatinine uh, as well. Um, the, we'll come back to the fruzamide in a minute, shall we, Rory? But Matilda, we, we're going to sort of cover off that, that one question. I mean, I, I do realise, having said that, that sometimes you're just stuck. Sometimes you're just going to not get to the target doses of all your medications. And you know you're going to perhaps get to move up on one more dose of something, but you've got to make a bit of a choice. Which one are you going to go for? So I guess we can take that moment, Gary, to do that last poll, which is the third question. So just bringing that up, just remember you just to submit your answer. You just need to flick a question, answer for the other two questions again. We'll just get that 30 seconds or so. So blood pressure 105 on 70, heart rate 70. Those are your current medications, Selazapril 1, Bisoprolol 6.25 and Spiralactone 12.5. You're seeing them in your clinic down the track and you feel like you're remembering Gary's voice in the back of your mind that you need to up titrate. What can you push up in this situation? I think probably we mean um, uh, Cavalilol 6.25 rather than Bisoprolol, don't we? Whoops, sorry. <laughs> or, or it could be Bisoprolol 1.25, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Eighty eighty percent have voted there, Matilda. Uh, so bisoprolol was the winner, sixty-three percent, thirty-five percent chose salazapril, and one person chose spironolactone. It's all right, we don't know who. Yep, so I'm I'm with the, the beta blocker group. I'm with the bisoprolol group. Uh, if you've only got so much more blood pressure to spend, you're probably gonna get best bang for your buck uh, spending it on your on your beta blocker so that's probably what I would go for hey Rory it is someone's asked about fruzamide and mm. managing the diuretic is really important part of allowing you to up treat these medications I mean I know you think this is important as me so I'll get you to cover that if you want yeah, so um, when people go home from hospital, uh, I give them a table um, about how to manage their their fruzamide going at home, and I, I spend quite a lot of time going through this. So I encourage them, if they don't already, to, to definitely get some scales um, and and work out that if their weight's going down, then they reduce their fruzamide dose, and if it's going up, they increase their fruzamide dose. Um, and preferences to, to try and downtrade trade it as much as you can. There's no more no mortality benefit on being for being on fruzamide, um, just uh, symptoms. Um, so, uh, yeah, and, and, and I guess I'm... In our region, we're blessed with uh, some really good heart failure nurses, uh, or one heart failure nurse, who who will get around and, and also um, reinforce this, um, and also up titrate their, their other medications. Um, and sometimes, 
yeah, so so recommending the lowest dose to, to keep them at their dry weight and their um, dry weight and and sometimes that's even being off the the fruzamide altogether. Um, but I guess the, the other point to to make on this is that if you see someone coming back and maybe their creatinine's gone off a bit and their um, blood pressure's down a bit, it's to, to not just blame the the ACE inhibitor or the spironolactone or the the beta blocker. Have a look at their diuretics, and they might just be running dry, and and you may be able to decrease your their fruzamide and and that will give you room and either their renal function or their blood pressure to, to up titrate the, the evidence, the stuff that's going to stop them coming back to hospital and uh, keep them alive a bit longer. And further to that sort of discussion around frozomide, we're all faced with a patient who's not really responding to their frozomide. So mm. in the other direction, you haven't been able to get them off it. In fact, their weight seems to be going up despite the increasing doses that you're um, prescribing them. Could, could you just comment on maybe some tips and tricks on on how you might get around that situation? Yeah. So 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 often with when when everything's real wet and soggy, their their guts are real wet and soggy, and and fruzamide isn't as well absorbed. Um, uh, Bumethanide, which is another loop diuretic, uh, so one milligram is is worth forty milligrams of fruzamide. Um, is supposed to be a bit better absorbed across an edematous gut so that might be something that if you can um, switch them over to to bumetanide might keep them out of hospital um, sometimes you need just to bring them in and and, and give them ivs um, if iv and and to uh, gary what, what you do but um i generally start with just convert their oral dose to an iv dose to start with to to start a good diuresis um, and some people are really stubborn um, so you can and if they're still not weighing despite really strong uh, doses of, of furosemide then you can add a thiazide um, or, or spironolactone but you need to watch for, for hypotension for that and that can be uh, um, anything from sort of chlorothalidone, pentrofluorazide through to metolazone in terms of your thiazide. Um, do you, and, sorry, sorry Roy, yeah, do you mean sorry. adding them um, as to the fruzamide, so using to the those... fruzamide, yeah, yep, yep, yep. So, and just you can often just do that temporarily, right? Yeah, yep. So, so I would, I would give um, my my strategy would be to give some a, a single dose of uh, thiazide right as a once only, and see what happens. Um, uh, you could also add in um, vaso slash veno dilator, like like GTN, as an infusion to your fruzamide um, to to help aid the diuresis. Um, all of these will be trade-offs with with hypotension. Um, yeah, and and I guess the other thing that that comes up is is whether to use uh, fruzamide infusion versus fruzamide IV boluses. And I must say that the evidence is really mixed, uh, and it, it really depends what um, and when you you read uh, the, the studies and meta-analysis. But probably there's no evidence that infusions are any better. And than than boluses, and they may even worsen. There's some studies that show that, that they worsen acute kidney injury, rehospitalization, and there's a mortality uh, effect associated with being on a, an infusion rather than than boluses. Or do you have a comment to make about um, the frequency of fruzamide IV dosing or oral in, in hospital, um, and what time of the day it should be given? Do you think that matters? 
I really don't think it matters. I mean, um, no, having said that, it depends. It depends on the mobility of the patient uh, and, and how much nursing resource it takes to, to get that patient to pee. Uh, um, I think uh, generally I still stick to morning and lunchtime. Uh, yep. Um, but um, in, in the emergency departments, if someone's very puffed and they're really wet, then uh, it's just, I'll just chat it. Gary, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, no, no, I think that's covered it pretty well. I'm like you, I would only tend to add my thiazide as a once-off initially. If you're going to use it regularly, you may then you might need it sort of a couple of days a week or something like, like that. You can, it can often get quite a profound diuresis with it when you're adding it to high doses of frusamide, and you will get quite marked azotemia as well with it pretty frequently. So you, you, you do have to watch them. But this is this is sort of last ditch sort of stuff, really, isn't it? It's it's yep. you're in real trouble. Yeah, and and I, I I know what you say about frusamide infusions, but when nothing absolutely nothing else is working, then I I occasionally resort to it. Does, do you as well, Roy? Do you? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think, Gary, there may have been one other drug that you might have wanted to, to promote, no, suggest. Yeah, well, if Roy gets to sort of like mention Entresto sort of like from the, you know, 2020, then I get to mention Tajoxin. It's only fair, really. So um, I know it's pretty old-fashioned, but if absolutely nothing else is working, then it, it's still worth just a, a little bit of ditch. You're not going to get a mortality benefit from it, but... You, there is evidence that you will reduce hospitalizations and improve symptoms. And let's face it, in, in these pa particular patients, that's what you're aiming for. Um, if, you, if you do just decide to add it in, then I'd stick with a pretty small dose. Um, most of the problems with the joxin occur at higher blood levels in terms of arrhythmias and most of the benefits at, at lower blood levels. So most patients wouldn't get any more than a, a little PG a day. And you'd be aiming for a um, uh, drug levels around the 0.5 to 0.9, which is quite a lot lower than most of our laboratories report the, uh, uh, the target therapeutic range. I was just wondering your thoughts, um, just going back to the importance of that reduced ejection fraction. A few times I've noted patients who've had reduced ejection fractions on an echo, say, post a non-STEMI. So they hadn't necessarily presented in heart failure. They'd just gone on to have an echo and they didn't really have any signs or symptoms of um, heart failure. But certainly that was noted that their ejection fraction was down. What what approach do you take? Do they earn themselves some cardiac chemotherapy as well? Yeah, these are really important patients. And um, we know for some work that Rory's done, eh, that uh, Rory, these while just about all um, STEMI, non-STEMI patients really should have an echo as part of the index admission, particularly those from rural areas, even though they're getting the angiography in the big hospital as well, are, are less likely that, to actually get an echo. And, and I mean, I, I think that's a real, a real problem because they're also less likely to get it at follow-up when they go back to their rural community because the, the service is less likely to be available, available locally. But we should really be working hard to pick these patients because even though they're totally asymptomatic, we know that if we get them onto a beta blocker and an ACE inhibitor, um, then they're much less likely to run into trouble with a failing ventricle down the down the track. So reality is you probably should have the same target doses. Um, but in actual 
day-to-day practice, I don't think most of us push them as aggressively as you would the patients with um, uh, with symptomatic heart failure. Yep, yeah, sure. So, so Roy, moving back to the patient who we've discussed this chat with the um, new new diagnosis of, of heart failure, shown to have reduced ejection fraction, um, followed all evidence-based therapy in hospital and as an outpatient, um, established on, on high doses with an excellent response. You review him in clinic in a, a year's time, let's say, and he has a repeat formal echo. His ejection fraction now is 58%, so, so well within normal limits. Um, are you happy to start down titrating or perhaps even stopping some of his, his medications and, and send him on his way? Um, I, I would try my hardest to keep the, this guy on everything that he's been on uh, that's made him better. And, and I think there's, there's a real risk fall backwards if he stops uh, um, his evidence-based therapy. I might, might make some concessions around spinalactone, but that's probably the only one, and really try and keep him on, on an ACE inhibitor and a beta blocker in particular, and warn him that this is, you know, currently this is likely a, a lifelong, or at least as long as he can tolerate um, med- medications for him. Um, some exceptions might be uh, where there's a um, completely reversible cause for their reduced something like peripartum cardiomyopathy, um, thyroid uh, that's now been totally treated, um, alcohol or uh, what we are seeing more and more of is meth-induced um, cardiomyopathy. Uh, you might um, be a, a little less firm in your advice, but but in, in general, try and keep them on for as long as, as long as you can. Cool. Thanks, guys. Well, that kind of brings us to the end of our, our case that illustrated our, our heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Um, our, our second case, unsurprisingly, is going to be be one with a, a preserved ejection fraction and is a much shorter case, um, and we'll see why when that comes to therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and before we move on to the next case, Gary, I think I'll just touch on this question that, that has come from the Cook Islands, because I think it's really important um, and relates back to one of those causes of heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction. So, you know, the, the elderly patient with heart failure and AF, whose heart rate, say, 130, blood pressure 98 on 62, this clinician's feeling a little bit nervous about starting beta blocker and wondering about a different agent, you know, should they be using digoamiodarone? What, what do you think about using a beta blocker in that kind of setting? Uh, there's uh, a, a recent trial which was looked at digoxin in these patients. Uh, it's more, a smallest trial, uh, which there's been some preliminary data come out of, which is suggesting that we've probably undervalued dig in recent times for these patients. So if you've got a pretty sluggish blood pressure like that, then the first thing that I would be jumping in with um, would be a, a bit of a bit of digoxin, particularly if they're, they're frail and, and elderly. Uh, and then you know you may actually see an, quite an improvement with that, and and if you want find then that you need to improve their exercise tolerance and get a little bit better rate control on exertion, then perhaps add in, in a little bit of um, beta blocker on top of that. But the first thing that I would be reaching for in that situation would be uh, would be ditch. Cool, thanks, Gary. Any any other comments on that one, Rory? No, I don't. I'd, I'd probably reach for, reach for ditch as well, and and maybe uh, a very small dose of beta blocker to start with with yep. with, with that. 
Cool. I'm sorry, Rory, I think we kind of, the one thing that we missed from your case was kind of the conclusion of what might have been the underlying pathology that had um, caused his heart failure in the, in the um, first place. What, was there any resolution to that? I mean, he we he lost quite a lot of weight really quickly, as I as I um yeah, I mean mentioned, and he felt heaps better. But, uh, I mean, there was a bit of a, a wrinkle, as there always is with with real life uh, patients, and and he'd also been collapsing, uh, uh, which was a reasonably recent thing, and and we captured some VT. Um, so he went to town and had an angiogram as an inpatient. Uh, it took nearly two and a half weeks to, for that for that to happen. <laughs> But, but it happened. Uh, but, um, extensive chondriatic disease uh, and got some stents. His formal echo um, showed injection fraction with 20 to 25% and some regional wall motion abnormalities. Um, and he had heaps more VT when he was over in, in, in Waikato and ended up with a um, CRT uh, defibrillator. Cool. Thanks, Rory. Um, so if we now move on to our, our next case. So this this case is pretty common where I work. It may be interesting. Oh, to hey. know, I'm here, I, buddy. I suspect it's a bit more common down south, uh, this sort of presentation, than it may be in, in, in the uh, further up north. So 76-year-old lady, history of hypertension. She's noted some really non-specific shortness of breath. Um, over recent weeks and months with, without any real cause uh, being found. But she becomes very suddenly short of breath one night and ends up being admitted by ambulance um, at about uh, one o'clock in the morning. As part of that workup for a shortness of breath, uh, she did have an echo done which showed moderately ventricular hypertrophy and a moderately dilated left atrium, but a uh, normal ejection fraction. Only medications are thiazide. And that's her chest X-ray on admission. Um, she's in obviously obvious respiratory distress. She's tachycardic, markedly hypertensive. JVP's up a bit, but she's got no peripheral edema, um, and she's got her lung fields full of creps. Uh, JVP, uh, sorry, her BMP's up modestly, as as is her creatinine and uh, and her troponin. And her ECG, she's in sinus rhythm with left ventricular hypertrophy and strain. So you know this sort of patient, Rory, even even in Thames. Uh, we we see it not uncommonly, but but certainly in Dunstan. And pretty stereotypical presentation of heart failure preserved ejection fraction, um, and probably represents the 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 most common of the three phenotypes that, that seem to be emerging from the, the literature. So uh, an elderly lady with um, hypertension, um, left atrial dilatation, left ventricular hypertrophy uh, with a normal ejection fraction. The other two being younger, younger, particularly men smokers. Uh, and the third group, a very sick uh, comorbid group uh, who don't do very well um, uh, at all. Um, so this lady's presented obvious respiratory distress early mounts, early hours of the morning. She's hypertensive, BMPs elevated, and um, I think 
although it seems pretty straightforward and especially given that we're talking about heart failure tonight, it's often a bit more challenging than this. Um, her tachycardia strikes me also and, and although she's got sinus rhythm, uh, this presentation, I also wouldn't be surprised if it shows if she had atrial fibrillation flutter. Um, and uh, of course, always thinking about alternative diagnoses, which uh, the tachycardia um, might um, might spring to mind, like VTE, uh, pneumonia, sepsis. Um, again, like the previous case, probably wouldn't pay much attention to that troponin. Uh, especially if she's not having any chest pain. I think that's, that rise is very unlikely to be due to an obstructive um, my, myocardial infarction. Um, in terms of managing this lady, I think I would start with some sublingual GTN, sitting her upright. And although she probably doesn't have a problem of too much total body fluid and it's just all in the wrong place, I probably would give her some furosemide as well. Um, and uh, see that her, and I'd start, probably start with 40, but her creatinine's up a bit, so we may need to use more, um, more than that given her, her renal function. Um, but I think uh, after seeing how she tracks with a, a couple of doses of sublingual GTN, I'd probably be <clears throat> pretty keen to start either a patch or an infusion of, of GTN, um, depending on nursing nursing resource and, and where, where we're at, um, and to tolerating a, a systolic blood pressure anywhere above 90 for this lady. Yeah, I, and I agree with all that, Rory. I think that point that you made about uh not being volume overloaded that this is just fluid in the wrong place is a really important one and agree totally it's all about uh, nitrates for this lady do you tend to use a patch or go straight for an infusion gary um like you i'm pretty keen on the sublingual gtn for a start just because you can get it going so quickly mm. um and you can easily titrate that you know a couple of puffs a few minutes later another couple of puffs watching the blood pressure because that's what you really got to do is get that blood pressure down really quickly. But I, but I do really like a GTN infusion. Um, and, and as soon as you've got a few puffs of, of sublingual in, I'd be uh, asking the nurses to get that up and going and getting to titrate that again pretty quickly and to get that PP down. Yeah. I also think um, uh, the use of CPAP in these patients is also really um, effective, especially for symptom control. No. Um, I mean, Rory, uh, would you just use that for that kind of just early, early stage when they're sort of in acute distress while your other therapy is kicking in? Do you think? Yeah, yep. I, I, my experience is they don't need it for that long, um, and and probably just until their blood pressure comes down and their that that um, the, the heart is offloaded. Is there often a, a, a triggering event for these patients or, or some explanation you can give for why they might deteriorate or does it just often just seem to kind of come out of the out of the blue? I, I reckon it comes out of the blue. I, I think it's we often sort of get hung up trying to think, for, find a cause like, you know, have they had an MI or something like that. But I, I think that's very seldom the case. I think it, it's the just, the important thing here is the hypertension. And, and they just sort of wind up into this hypertensive crisis, is my assumption. So what happens is, you know, the blood pressure goes up a bit, puts a bit of strain on the heart, 
there's a bit of catecholamine release, blood pressure goes up a bit further and it just winds up into this vicious circle over quite a short period of time during the night and then and, and crashing pulmonary edema. But your actual hunting for it and other cause beyond that, um, I, I think very seldom will you, you'll find anything. Yeah, I, 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 did, I agree with that. I, I, I think it's something that just tends to happen, eh? Yep. So any other aspects kind of about their ongoing management once you've gotten through that initial crisis? I, mean, I, I think that you need, I mean, she, she needs to have a thorough checked and magnesium, calcium and all, all those kind of things. Um, but as opposed to heart failure, reduced ejection fraction, there's other than treating what you see, uh, there's not a lot of evidence to do anything else. So this lady needs good ongoing blood pressure management. Um, I'd probably choose... Uh, I mean, you, and you can pick whatever blood pressure lowering agent that, that you want. Uh, I'd probably choose an, an, an ACE inhibitor. I'd still bet that she's a lady that is has or is going to get some atrial fibrillation and, and an ACE inhibitor might reduce the uh, chance, you know, the, the, the number and, and length of paroxysms in her, for her. Um, but also her creatinine's a bit off and the kidneys might like the, the ACE inhibitor as well. Um, but otherwise, um, there's some evidence that uh, spironolactone or plenarone might help in that very comorbid cohort or phenotype of, of patients with heart failure preserved ejection fractions but there's very little evidence other other than treating what what you can see so keeping a good uh, um, control of their hypertension or the atrial fibrillation if they're in that uh, yeah gary any thoughts on that no i agree with that I mean, it doesn't take very long to cover the evidence-based therapy for the management of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction just because pretty much there's no um, proven evidence-based therapy. So yeah, she is quite likely to, to need a little bit of a diuretic into the future, but these patients are often really pretty brittle um, and it's easy to give them too much diuretics. So, so they probably only need quite a small amount you need to be reasonably careful careful with it. It's going to be quite unlike that patient uh, we had first up who with a very poor LV function and a um, and who presented grossly edematous. Um, I wonder if it's worth just touching very briefly on the diagnosis of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction because I know that I find it really pretty problematic. Uh, it, it was really easy. It's pretty easy when someone presents like this. When they present in, in crashing um, left heart failure, uh, it, it, it's pretty obvious that, that they're in heart failure um, and they're also very hypertensive and you've got the benefit of the echo, but that's frequently it's not the case. I mean, it's frequently a lot of these patients present the way she initially presented before her admission to hospital, just with shortness, shortness of breath, for which you can really find almost no other explanation. Um, you'd like to think that a BNP is really helpful, but it's not nearly as helpful as it is in, the, in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And an awful lot of these patients will have BNPs, which is sitting in that marginal gray, frustrating sort of, sort of zone. Um, it, it, the, the echo is important, but again, the changes can be reasonably nonspecific. Um, I mean, I really like to see 
um, either a dilated left atrium or left ventricular hypertrophy. And if I see one of those two things, I feel much more comfort comfortable about making the diagnosis of heart failure with preserved ejection, ejection fraction. Um, I must admit, I find those um, more sort of vaguer markers of diastolic dysfunction, which modern, modern echocardiography sort of tries to find for us, less helpful. Um, and I think that frequently they're, they're not actually present. And as Rory said, many of these patients are atrial fibrillation anyway, and you can't, you can't measure those um, measures of diastolic dysfunction anyway. Um, so I mean, what, what, whatever, it, it can be quite a di difficult diagnosis to make and it, not infrequently it is a diagnosis of exclusion. Well, thanks for that, um, that Gary. I think that it's, it's important to, to um, be aware of the, the difficulties around that, that diagnosis. Um, just um, going backwards in time, just a couple of questions. This is probably more relating to the first case um, and the, the use of the digoxin that we discussed um, finally. Uh, in those sort of situations, do you need to load those patients with dig or just start them on that, that low dose that you're intending to keep them on? To me, oh, I, I would generally, this is a pretty chronic sort of situation um, where you're dealing with this really pretty close to end stage heart failure. And, and I probably wouldn't bother to load in that situation. The yep. situation where I'm much more likely to load is where you're trying to get more rapid control of your atrial fibrillation. Yep. So do you think any, any further kind of comments from either you for the, for the ongoing management of the heart failure with preserved ejection fraction? Um, situation other than it being frustrating. I, I think it's, it's helpful for some of the patients to know that there is part of it that shortness of breath on exertion that, that they're getting um, is due to not necessarily a weak but to a stiff heart and if, if, they've, if it's well explained to them and they understand what's causing it, uh, then they'll perhaps find it a little bit easier to live with. Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. Any any further comments to that, Roy? No, not 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 really. Uh, cool. So that brings us the, to the end of our our two cases. I just wonder if we could. Go, come back to each of you and perhaps just uh, what single learning point you'd like people to carry away from from this evening and our brains can usually only cope with about one thing from a presentation what what would that be for you Gary oh I think that's easy that's around the up titration of evidence-based therapy and heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and I, I think it's so important can make an enormous difference and it's something we do really poorly I told you on mute there, but I think were you asking me? Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's it's the same. Uh, if 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 someone comes into hospital with heart failure reduced ejection fraction, start a beta blocker and ACE inhibitor and spironolactone, and if they're already on it, then send them out on a higher dose. Yeah, and I'd like to. I know there's at least one. Um, cardiac nurse in, in the audience and I'd just like to give a, a shout out to them and also you know, emphasise the importance of engaging them in that process if you've got access to, to a nurse that them having that um, input once the patient's out in the community and monitoring that up titration is, is really valuable.
So that brings us to the end of our, um, our Heart Failure webinar tonight. I want to say thank you so much to Warren and Gary for all the expertise um, and thank you to Gary for all he's taught me about the management of heart failure over the over the years. Um, so good night to everyone. Pō marie and ka kite anō.